Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Good afternoon, everyone. We have quite a treat for you today as we welcome Dr. Randolph J. Nudo, PhD. Dr. Nudo is a university distinguished professor and vice chairman of research in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine, as well as serving as the Marion Merrill Dow Distinguished Professor in Aging at the Kansas University Medical Center. He is also the director of the Landon Center on Aging and the director of the Institute of Neurological Discoveries. He is a leading authority on neuroplasticity and recovery after brain injury, and is recognized internationally for his work on the effects of physiotherapy on functional plasticity after stroke. His work has been funded by uh, the National Institutes of Health for over three decades. He currently holds other grants from the Department of Defense, as well as private foundations for his research in traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. Dr. Nudo is the editor-in-chief of NNR, which is uh, the Neuro Rehabilitation and Neuro Repair Journal, a leading journal in the field of neuro rehabilitation, and serves on the National Advisory Board for Medical Rehabilitation Research at NIH NICHD. In addition to continuing fundamental research on post-stroke neuroplasticity, he and his colleagues are developing micro-implantable devices for repairing neural circuits after brain and spinal cord injury. So, good afternoon, everyone. Um, we're here with Dr. Randolph Nudo. Yeah, hello. And I'm also here with uh, Dr. Jason Edwards. Hello. Uh, I think slowly they're trying to phase me out of the podcast uh, since I'm, I'll be graduating soon. And uh, Jason will be probably taking over. You're going to have to learn his radio voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. I don't know how much of that is teachable. So. <laughs> Just kidding. So um, Dr. Nudo just gave a presentation on, uh, the title was Shaping Plasticity to Enhance Recovery After Brain Injury. I think it was more than anything focused on cerebrovascular accidents and strokes, um, but there was some tie-in with uh, traumatic brain injuries as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and uh, we, we typically do these uh, experiments in... Uh, in animal models where we can control uh, the variables such as the site of injury, but we think they, they translate to, to the human condition uh, quite nicely. I think it t it's telling us a lot about how human stroke and human traumatic brain injury occurs and how recovery occurs from, from those injuries. So, Dr. Nudo, if you don't mind me asking, um, overall, the overarching theme of your research, it's to, is it to enhance recovery? Is it to enhance somebody's functional abilities after they've had some sort of life-altering central nervous system insult? Yeah, so we, uh, our, our goal is really to enhance as much of the uh, recovery as they can gain back. People, people do get 
somewhat better on their own, uh, you know, something we call spontaneous recovery, but uh, we want to, uh, that's limited and it's uh, limited in time. Uh, and, uh, you know, usually people with a stroke and motor dysfunction uh, after three months, there's, there's not a lot of spontaneous recovery. So we want to uh, improve that and, dis and uh, really develop approaches that uh, allow the brain to, uh, uh, to uh, respond and, uh, and actually develop uh, a function in a much more efficient way. So you're mentioning, you mentioned the three-month mark, and I know that none of this is black and white. That's right. In, in the limited experience that I have, you know, as a PGY4 resident in physical med and rehab, you know, patients are constantly asking questions like, hey, what can I expect to get back? Hey, doc, am I going to walk again? Am I going to be able to use my right hand again after I've had, you know, a stroke? Uh, so on and so forth. They, they ask these questions. These questions are, you know, very important to the patients, to their families. Um, and it's difficult in our position to be able to give these answers, but you're kind of at the forefront of where this research is to help maybe at least clear some of the mud in the water so that we understand what's going on. Yeah, and, and I think that that's right, that it's very difficult to, uh, to put a, a, a time on it. I mean, when we, when we dis, uh, describe a three-month time period, it's, it's really the averages. And, uh, and some people will do much better, and uh, just like our animals, some of them do better with a given, uh, a given therapy, physiotherapy. Uh, and uh, so, it, but there, there certainly is uh, very good evidence that whether it's animals or people, that, that they can achieve more than what uh, you would predict uh, uh, just uh, uh, left to themselves, that, that uh, uh, various types of therapies, including physiotherapy, will uh, improve their function. Okay. So you mentioned a couple of discrete phases in recovery after there's been an insult. Um, you mentioned the acute phase, uh, the recovery phase, and then a chronic phase. Um, can you shed a little bit more light as to what you mean by those three phases? I, yeah, the acute phase, especially uh, with respect to uh, stroke, uh, is uh, we're, we're really trying to uh, uh, rescue as much of the uh, the damaged tissue as we can. We want to limit the injury, and I always make the analogy to a fire drill. And uh, you want to get—it's an emergency. You want to get the fire team there as quickly as possible, put out the fire, limit the damage as best you can. And the way that we can do that is to, uh, and uh, because a stroke, uh, the most common types of strokes are a blockage of an artery. Uh, that we need to open up that artery and allow blood to flow once again. And so we, we have some techniques to do that. We have some drugs that will uh, dissolve the clot that's formed in the artery. We have devices where the, uh, where the surgeon can go in uh, and actually retrieve the clot and pull it out. And that allows the blood to flow once again. But that has to be done very quickly within the first three hours. And, and so uh, the, that acute phase uh, is marked by uh, the, uh, it's an emergency and you have to be able to recognize that you have a stroke and get to a, uh, a, an emergency room as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and so uh, we're not in the repair mode. In the repair, uh, the, the recovery mode is, uh, is uh, cleaning up the mess and trying to reconstruct 
what we can of the uh, of the damage. And when I say mess, our brains aren't aren't a mess, but uh, the, <laughs> the damage that they cause to the neuronal tissue is permanent, and we we want to we've limited that damage as much as we can. Now the brain, though, is, at that period of time during that recovery phase, um, they're, they're, we see people getting better on their own to some extent, but the brain is in this robust period of rebuilding itself, and, and that's what we really try to do in the laboratory: is understand first understand what's the brain's ability to repair itself and uh, and it does undergo some extensive uh, rewiring and uh, I always tell people that the uh, the, the, the brain uh, the, uh, the the brain after stroke is not a normal brain with a piece taken out of it it's a completely rewired system and so the, even the parts of the brain that are left intact that haven't been damaged by the stroke are undergoing this process of reorganization, trying to learn uh, new ways of doing things. And sometimes that takes time, sometimes that takes uh, guidance through therapy. But that is the time, that recovery period uh, after that acute phase uh, is a really important time, uh, we think, for, uh, uh, for us to intervene with, uh, with uh, physiotherapy and other kinds of therapies, whether it be drugs or uh, or brain stimulation to uh, enhance that process as best we can uh, so that the brain can, can help repair itself. Okay. So you mentioned some of this rewiring that occurs. You're, you're, you're telling us that for us to have a better understanding of what goes on after a stroke, it's not that a piece was taken out. That piece, there's a piece, you know, the brain is whole, but there's you know, a, uh, an injured part of the brain. And you mentioned rewiring. Now this, Jason and I, during your lecture, we're kind of whispering to each other, trying not to get in the way of your presentation. Um, but we were talking about how in medical school, we're taught the central nervous system, you know, specifically the brain and the spinal cord, don't really, what we've been taught, is they don't really have much of an ability to recover after an injury, not like the peripheral nervous system, which can regrow. We've, we, you know, we even have neurologists that have specified how long you know, it takes for a peripheral nerve axon to grow a certain amount and so on and so forth, or rescue theories that occur uh, in the peripheral nervous system. But you're, one of the most fascinating slides, in my opinion, was when you showed, let's say you gave an example of a case, there's a patient who has a stroke, there's a stroke in the primary motor cortex, so the area that's responsible for moving, right? Or ultimately, right. the primary area that's responsible for moving, because it's a concerted um, effort by the brain to send these signals. Um, but in those prefrontal areas, the areas that are priming for movement, the areas that are thinking about the movement before the movement occurs, you, you showed that some of that rewiring can occur instead of going directly from the primary premotor cortex to the primary motor cortex and then to the supplementary cortices, that it can kind of bypass that yeah, and uh, in a sense, that that's right. It, it's you know there, we have um, uh, these areas that uh, the control of the brain that control movement uh, that are often injured in in stroke. Um, uh, after they're damaged, we we have to rely on what what is left. And some of these premotor areas, uh, they're in, in 
while they do have distinct functions, they overlap in some, some ways. They're, they have uh, some redundant functions with the area that was injured. So they already have the, the connections to the spinal cord. They have connections to certain uh, other areas. They have to interact with other areas in the cerebral cortex. And those are already existing, but they're not very efficient. And there aren't enough fibers to produce uh, this very fine movement. Uh, so, uh, for example, the, the, these premotor areas, now, now they, while they're still intact and they're trying to uh, uh, use, uh, use whatever capacity the brain has to produce movement, um, they don't have connections with uh, the very important part of the brain, the somatosensory cortex. That was a, something, that was a job that the motor, primary motor cortex uh, uh, did. And the reason that's important is that every time you move, uh, your, uh, your motor cortex has to know where in space your limbs are. It can't just, it's not just programmed to execute a movement and, and grab a cup of coffee uh, without constantly knowing the position of the muscles, how much the muscles are contracted, um, uh, the force that's exerted, where they are in space, have they contacted the cup yet, uh, and then uh, uh, and not uh, squeeze too hard so you literally break the cup that you're squeezing with the right amount of force and then bringing it to your mouth accurately. All of that is it's more than just uh, the brain sending out um, uh, uh, information to the muscles to control them. It's this uh, interplay and constant feedback from the muscles and joints about their position in space and force of contraction. And that, that's one of the things that's lost. So now you have a redundant system that, that now can operate to move the limbs to some degree, but it's not very efficient and it's not very accurate. And so one of the things that the brain does all on its own is to form completely new neural connections. The, the axons from the premotor area um, uh, send out fibers over fairly long distances in, in the adult brain, and it's not limited to, uh, to young brains. This can happen in adult brains to reconnect those areas. And we think that this must be the brain trying to recapture that integration between the, the input from the muscles and joints and the outputs uh, that, it, that it has to the uh, spinal cord. Uh, so uh, it's doing the best it, it can, um, and, uh, it, but it does respond by recreating a new way of doing things. It's not the normal brain. It's a new, uh, uh, a new a, a connectional uh, structure that the brain adopts after that's triggered by the injury. So when we say that the brain is fixed in adulthood, it doesn't have much uh, capacity to to uh, change and uh, be plastic. Well, we know it very fine grain. That's not true. Every time you learn something new, uh, it's one of the things we we tell that children get excited about when we talk to the schools, talk to them in schools, when you learn a new fact, a new math problem, your dendrites are growing, new branches are forming new connections all the time. And uh, so, and we can literally see that, the volume of the brain actually can get bigger in certain areas because you've 
added new connections. You may not grow new cells. New cells aren't born in the brain every day to a large extent, but they grow new connections, just like the roots of a tree can, can branch out and, uh, to uh, receive more nutrients if uh, you know, given enough water. Well, the water or miracle grow for the brain is teaching <laughs> new information. And then those dendrites can grow. Now that's, that's at the really low level, uh, 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 but on a grander scale, when there's an injury, now the brain is primed to go into action and there are major reconnections that are made. So I remember, <laughs> that takes me back to when I was in elementary school, um, I remember one of my friends telling me, oh, every time you learn a new fact, you get a new wrinkle in your brain. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now as far as, and I'm going to go back, I, I apologize for taking you back a step, sure. but when you were mentioning the acute phase, you were mentioning really what we're trying to do is when, when we get out you know, to educate the public as clinicians, what we try to do is, okay, these are the quick signs and symptoms of a potential stroke. Because you mentioned like that, that window is just a couple of hours yeah. for potential reperfusion or trying to prevent this injury from, from really going downhill and getting worse. Um, but one of the other things that you mentioned was uh, um, clinical uh, research has been aimed at n what you called neuroprotection. So the development of treatments that may be able to enhance, you know, the, the, the body's ability to prevent some of that inflammatory cascade or so, or, or so on and so forth. Could you shed a little bit more light on that and where that research went and where it is? Yeah, there's been uh, quite a bit of research and, you know, all the pharmaceutical companies were very interested in this uh, uh, back in the, the 1980s, uh, as early as that, uh, and we were understanding how important plasticity was and neuroprotection. And so there are a lot of animal models where uh, various drugs that, uh, that blocked a, a process known as uh, excitotoxicity. So uh, neurons, after they're injured, they, start be, they get very excited, and that, that means that there are changes in the voltages across their membranes, and they start an ion, a calcium and uh, ions start crossing across the, the membrane. And actually, if you have too much excitation in a neuron, it literally will die it, uh, the, uh, uh, due to this process of excitotoxicity. So there were drugs that were targeting uh, a particular receptor that was involved in uh, exciting neurons too much and kind of trying to dampen that down. And, um, and animal studies seem to work really well. You know, you could, you could save a rat's, uh, the rest of the rat's brain with a particular drug that would block this excitotoxicity. Um, but uh, when this was done and uh, tried in humans in clinical trials, it didn't, it didn't work so well. And it, that's one of our big challenges is that, um, you know, we can control all the conditions in, in the animal models, but, but strokes in people are quite different. They occur in different locations. People come in, some of them, with other conditions. It's not like our perfect uh, young male rats that we have in the laboratory. These are, these are people that have different genetics. They, have, uh, they may have other conditions such as diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, and so those, those things it's, uh, make it difficult for, uh, for us to develop drugs that just work for everybody across the board. And so um, uh, there were uh, literally hundreds of drugs that 
uh, that worked in animals but didn't work in people. And, and, and frankly, the, the pharmaceutical company got a little frustrated and they said, well, we could make more money making uh, stomach uh, drugs for stomach acid than we can do for stroke. So you know, we're getting out of this business. And literally a lot of them did and, uh, because they couldn't find drugs that would, uh, that would uh, uh, prevent the secondary injury that occurs as a result of the stroke. So even if you rescue uh, as much as you can and you get blood to return, blood flow to return to as much of the brain as you can, there's still, the stroke has induced this chemical cascade that results in secondary injury and through excitotoxicity and other events. And um, uh, those did not seem to, to work so well when we tried to uh, uh, take them into people. Um, and I will say that, that there's, there's still a lot of hope. And in fact, one of the, uh, and I'll, I'll ask you guys what, uh, what, uh, how many of your stroke patients uh, get uh, uh, some type of SSRI, serotonin um, uh, reuptake inhibitor? How, how many of your stroke patients get that? Well, I'll days? defer this one to, to Dr. Edwards here. Dr. Edwards is actually going to be pursuing a brain injury fellowship. So I think it's, it's somewhat patient-dependent and family-dependent. Um, a lot of that's, it depends on kind of preconceived notions about antidepressants. Um, you know, it's an important talk, I think, to have with a patient early on. I mean, I think there's some definitely good evidence out there that in conjunction with therapy, it can improve motor recovery. I think when you really sit down with the patient and explain it, most of them are open to it. So the, the majority, I would say, yeah. of patients. Yeah, it's something that, uh, that even though it's not a neuroprotective drug per se, we know that a lot of stroke patients uh, deal with post-stroke depression, and that actually limits their participation in, uh, in uh, therapies uh, that might... Uh, aid in their recovery, uh, and it's a, these are relatively safe drugs. I mean, there are some drugs that, uh, that in, for example, in animal models that uh, they're not neuroprotective, but they, they help uh, uh, in the recovery phase, uh, such as um, uh, acetaminophen, uh, or not acetaminophen, yeah, that, <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, uh, the stimulants that uh, that are t uh, typically used, uh, amantadine. Uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, uh, methylphenidate has, okay. has actually had uh, it worked really well in animal models, um, and uh, to to some extent in small trials in in people. But there's some fear about using those stimulants because they do raise blood pressure a bit, right. and so uh, you know you don't want to compromise uh, the system of uh, someone. Uh, that's just had a stroke, so um, so we have to really weigh the risks and benefits. Uh, but th there may be um, other drugs that are coming online that that have the same uh, effect on uh, a beneficial stimulation of, of neurons without the the side effects. And I think that's why you know, Jason. I mean, tell me what you think. But I think that's why we find this particularly so interesting is because in in our field, especially when you're talking about the acute inpatient rehabilitation unit, where we've taken patients that just, you know, they just went through their stroke or their traumatic brain injury, and we're trying to do whatever we can. You know, I mean, we're throwing the kitchen sink, sometimes is how it feels, at least from our perspective, to try to get their function back. 
but I mean, we're physicians at the same time, we're seeing the effects, you know, some of the side effects of these medications, as you mentioned, some of these medications can raise blood pressure. Not every patient's the same, as you already mentioned. Some patients already had hypertension before they had their, even something completely unrelated, their traumatic brain injury. So even though we're trying to improve their cognitive function or their physical abilities, you know, we're leading to some other complications and we have to essentially make these small tweaks and titrations to be able to really try to maximize this patient's outcome yeah. without setting them back medically in some other way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that really brings up a really important point uh, that uh, that I always talk to the residents about uh, when I, we talk about clinical trials. You know, you, you, can't, you can't treat all of your patients as if they were like the subjects in a clinical trial, and, and there was a it, no matter how good clinical trials are, um, they we try to control the conditions in the in the subject population, and so I, I give a talk to residents uh, called uh, uh, "Do these subjects look like my patients?" And this is where your your clinical experience is really critical because you you have to weigh. Uh, what what a clinical trial said about a particular therapy, uh, you know, maybe just getting patients to walk down the hallway um, uh, ten times a, st- a day instead of two times a day, and that it seemed to help. But you've got to understand your individual patient's condition and whether that would be beneficial to them. And, and I, so I think that uh, as as good as we try to be about doing our science and developing. Uh, animal models and translating it to, to clinical trials in humans, there's still a huge component of, uh, of clinical expertise and knowing when to apply those therapies and in what individuals. Yeah, so essentially you're saying we can't take a purely algorithmic approach to these things. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, being that you do so much work with even molecular um, and basic sciences um, to, to really uncover at the base what's going on, um, in your opinion, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. Now that we're slowly starting to see some of some of the interventions that they even taught us while I was in med school not too long ago, four, five, six years ago, they were talking about we're, we're able to test patients for their particular pharmacological profile. What does that mean? Some people break down you know, certain drugs or they metabolize certain drugs and some people don't, those same drugs. Um, now that we're starting to see this clinically, because now it's actually available, even here at TIER, we're able to test certain patients and see if they would be or would not be a good candidate for a particular drug. I just saw it the other day when I was in clinic, and I was kind of amazed that we even that we were already offering this. When, when I was taught this, this sounded like something sci-fi 20, 30, yeah. 50 years from now. Um, to make my question even more long-winded, now that we're starting to see these things, do you think that understanding that will lead us to be able to better titrate what it is that somebody should be taking, what treatments we should be instilling in these patients? Yeah, I, I think it's really exciting, this whole area of, you know, in general that we call precision medicine and being able to look at someone's genetic profile mm-hmm. and we know enough about markers for the way people metabolize drugs uh, that um, uh, that we can we can predict whether they would benefit from from that therapy. So that's that's really one piece of of understanding how to how to treat those patients. And I think it even goes beyond drug dosing, although that's how it's been used quite a quite a bit. 
but there's a lot of literature uh, in the rehabilitation literature to suggest that there are genetic markers that will predict whether someone actually uh, has a positive response to physiotherapy. And uh, uh, so uh, that, and we're still in the early days of that, but I, I think that we're seeing more and more of this coming online that, uh, that we will be able to use that uh, genetic profile uh, to understand um, uh, some of the, at least, at least narrow the range of, uh, of treatments in an individual that would be more effective than others. And so we talked about a couple of options for kind of trying to optimize recovery, especially during that peak uh, period of plasticity. Um, we talked about physiotherapy, we talked about the efforts looking at neuroprotective agents, um, other medications, you talked a little bit about non-invasive brain stimulation. Could you maybe expand upon that a little bit? Uh, yeah. Uh, the, uh, there are um, a, a number of ways that we can uh, stimulate the brain uh, without actually uh, doing what a neurosurgeon does and open up the skull and uh, stimulate, put electrodes on the surface of the brain and stimulate. Uh, we, can, uh, we can stimulate the brain, and probably the most popular uh, way to do that right now is with uh, is uh, so-called uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And this is a, uh, a, a, a very safe device that, that uses a, uh, a coil uh, that induces a magnetic field. And I won't go into the, uh, the electronics, but some people probably know that if you, uh, if you have an electric field, it will induce a current to flow in a wire, and that's really the basis for a lot of our uh, our electronics that we still have today. Yeah. And so, if you uh, have a magnetic pulse over the uh, the skull, uh, it can penetrate into the cortex and actually induce uh, a change in the voltage of uh, particular neurons, cause them to discharge, and you can literally see uh, you know the the thumb. Uh, extend when you apply it to the thumb area of the motor cortex, and uh, it's thought that and uh, that we can excite neurons whether they're moving or not. We can apply these these pulses uh, magnetic of magnetic field to induce voltage changes in the brain to help excite those neurons, and so it's uh, and that alone has some benefit. But it has its maximum benefit when you pair that with some type of behavioral uh, paradigm, a behavioral task. Uh, so uh, if someone is uh, practicing uh, uh, dealing out playing cards, for example, after their stroke, uh, and uh, in, at the same time you're inducing uh, some kind of excitability in their motor cortex, that can have a more lasting effect than just practicing with the cards on their own. And so we're, what we're trying to do is, um, uh, is enhance the brain's excitability, its plasticity with these um, uh, non-invasive stimulation techniques, but it's the behavior that's going to shape how well those act. We can't just put on a cap and uh, and uh, do nothing and uh, think that we or you know, you could sleep with a cap on that's stimulating your brain. It's probably not going to do a whole lot of good. But if you do that in conjunction with, uh, you know, uh, some, uh, some patients that have a stroke, maybe they like to knit before their stroke and now 
uh, stimulate them while they're knitting. And the, the combination of the two, you're, you're exciting the brain, they can perform, they eventually start to perform, uh, their knitting becomes better than it would if they just practice knitting on its own. Uh, and it's certainly better than just stimulating the brain passively. The combination of the two can result in, to help shape uh, the, the plasticity that we know is occurring in the brain already. You used the axiom during your presentation, and with your permission, I'm going to steal it and use it myself, <laughs> but that was uh, cells that fire together, wire together. Right. Yeah. We recently actually had Dr. Uh, Lumi Sawaki here, yeah. and she, was, she, she gave a talk on, uh, on uh, repetitive uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So this is almost ideal that, that we're bringing in two of, the, two of the experts in the field to talk about this. Um, since uh, we're transitioning a little bit away from, you know, like the, the pharmacological interventions to some of the machine or other interventions, you, you spoke about brain-machine interfaces. Can you shed a little bit more light on that? Yeah, I, well, the, the, the typical way that we think about brain-machine interface uh, is um, that someone that, uh, in an extreme case, that... Uh, uh, that has maybe a spinal cord injury and has no movement, um, or you know, some people with strokes in uh, you know the a large pontine stroke that where they're uh, some of them are even locked in and they they have uh, uh, normal uh, cortical functioning but they can't control their uh, their skeletal muscles, and if you look at the uh, uh, the if you if you could look at the brain of those individuals and see what the neurons are doing, they're still intact. They're still alive. Just because someone has a spinal cord injury, the uh, the neurons in the motor cortex that that used to control the uh, uh, the uh, the neurons in the spinal cord, their their fibers have been severed, but their cell bodies are still intact. They're still there. What are they doing? They they don't have any. They don't have an, an output anymore, so they're uh, they're surviving. But what they're doing, we don't know. But they can, they still can function. And in fact, they can function uh, uh, to do some of the, the same kinds of things they did before. So with brain machine interfaces, um, uh, the most invasive approach to that is to go directly to those neurons and listen to their outputs of the individual neurons. Uh, and that has that's done through a surgical procedure, where electrodes are implanted into the motor cortex, and um, uh, if you then tie the output, so you have basically have electrodes in the brain. They're going to a, a computer somewhere where it's decoded uh, the the information coming from those neurons, and then we use that to control a mechanical device. So someone with one of these brain-machine interfaces uh, can just think about moving a cursor on a computer screen, and um, and they can they can literally move it around, and they can learn to control that uh, uh, fairly quickly. Or you could use that information to drive a robotic arm to bring a uh, uh, a, uh, you know, a cup of uh, hot chocolate to your mouth. So uh, and that. You know that is reality. It's it's not something we can do every day. There's, we're still in the very early stages of this, but we know that those neurons uh, can be uh, that can adapt their function to control external devices. They can be used to, to control um, 
exoskeletons, where you know there are actually mechanical devices put on the legs and the body that uh, uh, that have some in, intrinsic uh, function on their own, but we can control their movements. Um, so it, there, it's really an exciting time. Uh, and if any of you saw the uh, the uh, the World Cup uh, and uh, uh, Miguel Nicolelis was involved at Duke University, was involved with one of these brain-machine interface devices that controlled an exoskeleton. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this person with a spinal cord injury walked out and kicked a soccer ball. Now, that, you know, in, that's not necessarily um, uh, doing the kind of brain plasticity and brain rewiring that we were talking about earlier. It's really co-opting the function that's inherent in those cells and using it uh, to do something else, and, and that could be mechanical devices. Maybe in the future we'll be able to effectively tie that to stimulators in the muscles themselves, and we'll be able to literally bypass the spinal cord altogether. But we're still very far from, from that. Um, and you know, in the but coming to uh, back to reality, what we could do today. Um, not quite as efficient because it, uh, it's, it's not as specific, but you could wear a, a cap that records electroencephalographic activity and you're recording electrical activity from afar. It's got to go through, you know, out, uh, you're outside of the brain itself. It's got to go through the skull and through the skin uh, and you've got hair in the way, but you can still record these electrical signals. They can be decoded uh, to uh, produce an output. This is one of the ways that that's, that's been used um, very effectively and, and it's still on a, a research level is uh, someone, you know, I think of Stephen Hawking and some of the relatively primitive equipment that he was still using at the time of his death, but uh, there, are, uh, there are spellers available so that someone could just uh, very quickly uh, uh, type out um, uh, a, uh, a sentence uh, um, by just thinking about uh, attending to particular letters on a screen. And uh, those, are, those kinds of interface devices are getting better and better as they get faster at processing the information. They actually may be useful for people that are locked in uh, to, to actually uh, communicate. And that's a, that's a huge thing. So even though it's not in a sense, repairing the nervous system. Right. It's giving people back a function that they desperately need and want, uh, but it's using uh, technology, but, the, but the, the plasticity comes in the fact that those neurons in the brain can relearn. They can learn to, to uh, they're, they're, they're functioning. They wanna act as neurons and process information and, pro, and process outputs. Um, they need a new tool, okay. and so we've given those neurons a new tool uh, with this technology to, to operate. Are these are any of these devices available at this time? These, this is something that exists out there. Well, it's still in in uh, research mode. So there, uh, you know, there are a number of uh, research laboratories where this is being done in in clinical trials and very small numbers of individuals uh, uh, because it does it does take. Quite a bit of training, and we're not. Uh, I think we're still a few years for this to becoming uh, widespread, but it, it it inevitably will because it's it's mostly limitations of the technology. Okay. Well, 
Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so you talked about non-invasive brain stimulation. We talked about TMS. We talked about transcranial direct uh, current. You made an interesting point that the amount of research in human models using TDCS has increased exponentially. But this really hasn't been the case in animal models. Could you maybe touch upon that? Um, yeah, I think I think it's been very popular to uh, to conduct studies with uh, transcranial direct current stimulation in humans because it's relatively cheap and easy to perform. And and just to back up that uh, this differs from the magnetic stimulation in that it literally is like taking the two poles of a battery and putting them uh, over your scalp um, and. Uh, uh, so it's it's not like a car battery, where, uh, but it's a it's a relatively lower current. I and mean, it, it, um, if you apply electric current to the skin um, at you know more than you know eight or ten milliamps, you're going to burn the skin. So you know it has to be a, a relatively low current. And the thought is that some of that current gets into the brain. We don't really know how much, but uh, it, in uh, trials that have been conducted, people uh, tend to have improvements at uh, even normal individuals at uh, various types of cognitive and motor tasks after applying uh, the, the tr transcranial direct current stimulation or TDCS uh, over certain parts of, uh, of the brain. And um, you know you can feel it, uh, so there's an onset, but after it's on, you really can't tell that it's it's on after a, f a few seconds, so it's relatively easy to do a control stimulation where you turn it on briefly and turn it back off. Uh, so it's it's become very popular, and you can, you know, in terms of cost, uh, if you want to buy a uh, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulator, uh, even without the bells and whistles to uh, uh, to uh, uh, synchronize it with an MRI image of that individual's brain, you're still talking about $100,000, $125,000 for, uh, for a piece of equipment. Um, whereas TDCS, if you bought the Cadillac model that's commercially available, it's under $10,000. You could buy a functional device for under $500. You can put one together in your shop for under $10 with some parts from uh, the electronic shop, so, uh, which I wouldn't recommend. But people are doing this, and you know, video gamers are doing this now because you can buy these uh, these stimulators and put them on your head. Um, there are commercial products of, of mixed uh, uh, reputation that are selling these devices to uh, to baseball teams that are uh, have bat low batting averages uh, and. Uh, uh, so it, it's so there's a danger here that, that this TDCS is going to be snake oil, and so I, I think it's that the fact that there's so little animal information out there to really tell us mechanistically what it's doing. I think it's very important that, that those of us that do those kinds of experiments jump in here and and uh, really try to understand um, uh, the uh, the neurobiology of applying these currents before. Uh, we go too too far down the road with clinical applications. So far, the clinical applications have shown very short-term benefits, and they haven't been long-lasting. So uh, it uh, it may not be as uh, uh, profitable, even if we 
do the clinical trials, but we need to understand it better uh, before we get too far down the road. There are challenges in animals because using a, uh, you know, the, the size of electrode that's used in humans for this TDCS, I mean, you're, you're literally uh, stimulating the whole brain of a, of a mouse, but uh, there are ways to simulate the same kind of, uh, of conditions and study the neurobiology uh, and what, uh, whether uh, this, uh, this current is actually doing the same thing that TMS does, where it excites neurons to the point that they depolarize and send out signals, or whether it has some other effect on, uh, on other elements of the nervous system. Now, one of the underlying paradigms that I'm getting <coughs> from all of this is that you're, you, can, you always go back to you have to couple this with uh, a specific activity. So it's almost like we can't just rely on, on the device to, to enhance somebody's ability to recover. It's not like, hey, we're coming up with these devices or this drug or this treatment or this trans, you know, cranial magnetic stimulation and then all you have to do is just kind of sit in the chair, we'll put the scalp, you know, device on you and you're going to get better. It's, it, am, am I right in understanding that all of these treatments need to be coupled with what's essentially what essentially boils down to, bless you, the um, the physical and occupational and and even speech therapies that somebody needs to do. They need to voluntarily, you know, use these specific neural patterns at the same time. <laughs> bless Excuse you. me. Right now, right now, spring. Yeah. yeah, my Houston allergies. I remember those. <laughs> okay, so I think, uh, and it, it really depends on um, the, the the type of uh, condition that you're you're talking about. And I think that that it's very true, especially for uh, developing motor skill, that the stimulation needs to be combined with some type of behavioral experience. And that may be true also of cognitive function and speech and so forth, where you can act, you can, uh, th that it's amenable to practice. Now, there are certain uh, conditions, for example, the, the, the one approved application for transcranial magnetic stimulation mm -hmm. uh, is in um, a drug-resistant depression. Okay. And so it's hard to imagine a behavioral paradigm to tie to uh, a transcranial magnetic stimulation to enhance its ability. Uh, so generally, uh, for depression, and TDCS has also been, uh, it's been tested for, uh, in depressed patients as well, um, uh, they target a part of uh, the brain that is involved in these affective disorders and simply try to ramp it up, up and down. And so, uh, you know, it's a little more specific than using a drug that, that might act throughout the entire brain on a particular transmitter because it's changing the excitability of a, a fairly local area. Uh, so it's, it's possible that in, in some conditions like depression that that, that will be the, uh, uh, the best that we can do. Um, uh, so, I, in that case, perhaps just wearing the device would be sufficient. Okay. Well, I can honestly keep going and and keep picking your brain, Dr. Nudo. Uh, Jason, you said you I had have, Yeah, I have one more question for you. So we, we spoke before your lecture um, that maybe as a, as a resident or maybe as a junior attending, 
Um, there are a lot of perceived challenges or barriers to getting involved in research. In your experience, what would be your advice? Um, yeah, and I, I think that you know the challenges. Um, I, when I when I talk to residents about doing research, um, every institution has a slightly different uh, model for this, um, but the bar is is relatively low, and you know people uh, can uh, fulfill their academic requirement by doing a case study and presenting an abstract at a meeting and and be done with it. And if that you know, and I think that I first ask residents what their career goals are, and if it's if it's not if they're going to go into um, uh, to uh, private practice, uh, sports medicine, or uh, you know, no matter what a specialty, um, then you know maybe a, a full-blown um, uh, research uh, because it does take a lot of time. Uh, maybe that's not the right uh, the right goal. But even a I think even a practicing uh, uh, primary care physician should know something about how clinical trials are. Are conducted and the limitations of those clinical trials, uh, uh, so that they can understand how to utilize that information in their practice. So um, I, I think uh, to the extent that we do didactic, uh, uh, they have didactic exposure to some of that. That may be sufficient for some people, but uh, everybody is different, and they have different. Uh, uh, levels of uh, enthusiasm about doing research, and if someone, uh, I, I ask the residents if they have a particular clinical question that they're particularly passionate about knowing the answer to, uh, and they're passionate enough to actually spend additional time that they don't have uh, <laughs> trying to understand it, then, then by all means, uh, dive in uh, head first, and uh, uh, so. There are some things that are more realistic than others. I mean, there are, um, you know, I, I talked about some some systems. You know, in, in Italy, they uh, at University of Rome, they have six month research rotation for their residents that actually get involved. We had one involved in uh, bench research with with animals. Um, and we have neurosurgery residents in our lab that have uh, eighteen month uh, research rotations, and for. Uh, and those are required, so they all have to do it. But I, I think that that in in rehabilitation, it, it, I don't think we need to make this mandatory. I think we uh, just being in an academic setting. I, I think a, a resident gains from the research that's that's going on and learning about it, and the attitude of of other uh, uh, physicians on the faculty. Uh, uh, their approach to research, and it's very different than if you were to do a residency in a community hospital. So that alone, I, th I think you should should maybe give yourself credit for being in an academic institution from in, in the first place. But for those people that, that want to do more, where is that balance? We're not going to change the the financial structure of how we uh, we uh, we fund residents anytime soon, uh, and it's still driven by uh, a lot of the clinical demand. So um, there there are uh, a number of things that can be done. Uh, in terms of understanding more about an area, we, I had a resident that was particularly interested in brain injury uh, in older adults and how it may be different. And uh, and so I uh, I said, well, you can learn from me, and I can learn from you. And and uh, it's actually much more worth my time to invest in 
our interaction if I'm learning something too. So I, I asked her to, to really dive into the animal literature to learn what do we know about aged rats and, and brain injury. It turns out very little. There are probably uh, 20 publications using aged rats and mice with traumatic brain injury. Um, so all of our data, I mean, there are thousands of papers with young, healthy, otherwise healthy mice and rats. Uh, so now from her clinical perspective, what does that mean? What, what is special about that, uh, that older adult that has a, a head injury and how they respond? And, and she, got, uh, she got turned on by understanding more about inflammatory processes in the elderly. And uh, what do we know in the animal literature? So I think, you know, that kind of, so we, we ended up writing a perspective review. It's sort of like a mini uh, systematic review, but with 20 papers, it didn't take very long to, we, you know, we can cover the whole field. Uh, but uh, she was able to provide her clinical insight, and I was able to help her understand some of the uh, limitations of the animal models and we came up with what we think is an interesting perspective directions for future research paper that we're about to submit. Um, I, we also had talked about this a bit that I think that there's a wealth of information in uh, uh, electronic records that can be mined and uh, I think that that's something that uh, that I, I think people can do on their own time um, and um, and ask a question, and a, different institutions might have um, a different uh, ease of access to that information. For rehabilitation, the limitations are that a lot of the, there's not a lot of functional data in those electronic records, right. and so uh, we're, that's something that we can actually affect indirectly. You know, uh, I serve on the National Advisory Board for Medical Rehabilitation Research, and we talk about this a lot. How do we get functional data into the, the medical records. And, um, you know, uh, beyond a Rankin scale, uh, what, what can we do to get more uh, information so that when you have a question, and it really should start with your own clinical experience and what you think is an important clinical question, um, and then reading some of the, the reviews of the literature and then diving in, uh, realizing there's a gap in the literature and the, a, a retrospective chart review of that uh, from that electronic database is a really good starting point. It's not the final answer, but you're not going to have time to build infrastructure to design a clinical trial, conduct it during a, a residency rotation. So uh, uh, I think that that's, that's actually a really good way to mine existing data. Well, I mean, please keep us posted on, on your, that publication that you mentioned that you're going to yeah, submit with sure. this resident. That way we can, you know, we can learn a little bit Absolutely. from that. It's, it sounds interesting because, yeah, we, we don't know. We, we really don't. And that's the whole point to research, right, is to, is to answer some sort of what you can call a research question so that down the road we can come up with, with a clinical application. I mean, that's, that's the whole point, I mean, at, at least in my eyes. Yeah, and I, and I think that you should give yourself credit for the knowledge you have. I think a lot of residents uh, are intimidated by meeting with a PhD researcher and they don't know anything and uh, what could you possibly uh, be able to do. But you have a wealth of, of uh, clinical background already and um, uh, that's continuing to develop. And, and 
your questions are very valid, and they're probably things that I haven't even thought of. And uh, so that's how we, I, I have a lot of uh, collaborative uh, studies with, uh, uh, with surgeons that you don't think of as, as necessarily being uh, bench researchers. That, um, and, I, and I'll start with their, their clinical questions. What, what got you up in the middle of the night last week? Well, I had this guy that had this shunt that went out of whack, and I had to come in in the middle of the night. So, well, maybe we ought to study that. Maybe th th this is where a technological answer might be might be uh, uh, relevant. And you know, maybe if there's no uh, feedback-controlled shunt, maybe we got to design one. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's uh, so the, the, and that's the way I think research questions should develop uh, uh, to be a translational. We can. You know, our, the uh, uh, the lab rats like me can can uh, can study an esoteric question uh, for decades, and it won't have translational value unless I understand what the real issues are from you guys. So you got to give yourself credit that you've got a wealth of information that PhD researchers don't have. Yeah, and we can definitely team up. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. Well, um, Jason, if you have any other remarks. Dr. Nudo, thank, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you sure. so much for Absolutely. coming in, talking yeah. to you know our yeah, faculty contingent, our residents, um, our podcast listeners. Um, uh, thank you, sir. Absolutely, thank you. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.